This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 39 entitled Paul's Adam Christology in 1 Corinthians. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I am your host. Last week, we began to look at Paul's Adam Christology within the letter to the Romans. Adam Christology is a term to describe the theological understanding of Jesus, specifically in relation to Adam. As we observed, Paul's Adam Christology not only spoke about Christ as a human figure who did not consciously pre-exist, the primordial human being Adam of Genesis, but this Christology also overlaps significantly with Paul's complex soteriology and eschatology, meaning his understanding about salvation and his understanding about the end times and last things. Jesus, as the second Adam, fulfilled the role of Adam in his death, resurrection, and exaltation. Jesus' present enthronement in heaven and his coming to raise the dead in Christ also plays into Paul's Adam Christology. These themes will be revisited and further spelled out in today's examination of Paul's Adam Christology as portrayed within 1 Corinthians. Since 1 Corinthians was almost certainly written before Romans, it is interesting to see within this earlier letter how integrated Paul's Adam Christology is with his other theologies, such as his understanding of what Christ accomplished with his death and resurrection, the nature of humanity fallen and humanity restored, in what sense Jesus is ruling now in fulfillment of Adam, and how Jesus' resurrection helps give meaning to the future resurrection of believers. So let's begin. The discussion of Paul's Adam Christology in 1 Corinthians almost completely lies within 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 has two sections of this long and complex argument that describes Jesus as the counterpart to Adam. The first one is in chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. So I want to take that section first before we move on to the second section towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15. So point number one is Jesus as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. This passage reads, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. That's 1 Corinthians 
15 verses 20 through 28. An interesting passage with a lot of complex theology, eschatology, and soteriology. So let's look at some interesting points from this passage, specifically in regard to how Paul understands Jesus as the counterpart to the human being Adam. First, we see that Jesus is clearly called a man, clearly called a human being. In fact, Jesus has to be a human being in order to undo and fulfill the role of the primordial human being, Adam. This is no God dressed up in a man suit or some sort of angel dressed up as a human being. No, this is Jesus as an authentic member of the human race who is the second Adam, who is the last Adam. Here he is called a human being, the man, Jesus Christ. Just as Adam is responsible for introducing death into the world, which Paul identifies as an enemy in need of subjugation, Jesus is responsible for introducing the resurrection of dead people. Adam introduces death, Jesus introduces the resurrection. Those who are in Adam will die, meaning those identified with Adam's humanity, broken and in need of redemption. All human beings who are born are in Adam and are thus subject to Adam's broken and mortal humanity. That humanity is obviously in need of redemption, and that ultimate redemption is resurrection of the body. In contrast, those who are in Christ will be made alive via resurrection. Jesus has already been raised in the middle of history prior to this general resurrection, which is to take place at the end of history, thus demonstrating that Paul understood that the age to come has broken into the present with Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. This is extremely important to understand in regard to what Paul is saying here. Paul doesn't just simply understand that there are two ages, the present evil age and the age to come. Paul believes that the age to come has broken into the present with Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. Thereby, the resurrection, which is supposed to take place at the end of history, has broken into the present with Jesus being raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who sleep. Jesus' exaltation to sitting at God's right hand is understood as the beginning of Jesus' rule and reign, as we see there in verse 25, where it says Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. This reign and rule of Jesus is something that he is currently demonstrating as the one who has been exalted, sitting at God's right hand, sitting enthroned, at God's right hand. That means Jesus right now has already begun his rule and his reign, but this rule and reign is still yet to be consummated when Jesus returns. Verse 27 cites Psalm chapter 8 in verse 6. When he cites this, it says, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 27 says. Psalm 8 in verse 6 is a psalm describing Adam's vocation as being created lower than God, but given authority and rulership over God's creation. Jesus fulfills this role that Adam lost, being obviously lower than God, but given authority and rulership over God's creation. Paul seems clear to indicate that this reign has begun with Jesus' exaltation, 
but is still awaiting its full consummation when the last enemy to be abolished is death. Death, as Paul has already noted, was introduced by Adam. So for Jesus to be the second Adam and thus fulfilling Adam's role, Jesus not only has to share in Adam's death, come out the other end in resurrection, be exalted to rule in the way that Adam was supposed to rule, but to put all things into subjection under his feet. And the last thing to be subjected is death, the death that Adam introduced. So Jesus is already fulfilling the role of Adam in the sense of Adam's rule, but that rule is still yet to be fully realized because the kingdom is not yet fully consummated, and that will take place when Jesus returns physically to bring God's rule to this creation, and that rule is going to encapsulate death itself, the final enemy. So it's interesting there to see how Paul understands Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation as the way of fulfilling Adam's role of ruling and reigning over God's world, over God's creation. And it's also interesting to see there how Jesus as the second Adam helps identify how Paul regards the age to come breaking into the present how the powers of the age to come and how the age to come is realized in the present, but also how these promises are still yet to be fulfilled in the final form of the consummation of Jesus' rule and reign when he returns. As the second Adam, Jesus likewise is subordinate to God, as Adam was and as human beings were intended to be, according to Psalm 8. I want to read an interesting commentary excerpt. This is from Richard Hayes' commentary on 1 Corinthians in the Interpretation series. This is what he says in regard to this passage. He says, It is impossible to avoid the impression that Paul was operating with what would later come to be called a subordinationist Christology. The doctrine of the Trinity was not yet formulated in Paul's day, and his reasoning was based solely on the scriptural text themselves, read in light of his Jewish monotheistic convictions and his simultaneous conviction that Jesus is proclaimed as Lord by virtue of his resurrection. That's what Richard Hayes says in his commentary on 1 Corinthians in the Interpretation series on page 266. I think it's interesting to note that commentators seem to be open to admitting that Paul here is identifying Jesus as subordinate to God and that Paul is not teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. I like that honesty by Richard Hayes there in his commentary on page 266. I encourage people to pick up that commentary as well. So that's an interesting set of facts that we get from Paul's first discussion of Jesus as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28. I want to move now to later in 1 Corinthians, our second point, Jesus as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 49. Here Paul unpacks this theology further, specifically in trying to identify the humanity that Adam represents and the humanity that Jesus represents being the body that Adam's humanity is described as in contrast to the body that Jesus' new humanity, a humanity described as imperishable, is going to describe. 
So let's look at this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to start in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. So is the earthy, as also those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we who have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 49. And boy, oh boy, does Paul unpack and give a lot of information here. Not all of it is very clear, so we need to do some explanation. First, we see that Paul understands that there are two types, two types of humanity at play. The first type of humanity is introduced by Adam. And this humanity possesses perishable bodies capable of dying. The resurrection of Jesus, however who is the first fruits of the future resurrection of all believers, introduces a new wave of humanity that possesses imperishable bodies. In other words, Adam's humanity, due to sin and death, is broken and in need of redemption. The resurrection of Christ makes the new humanity possible for those who are in Christ and will ultimately be granted resurrection when Jesus returns to give immortal bodies to believers. Adam's humanity and the bodies that it shares with humanity is dishonored and weak. While Jesus' resurrection gives glory to dishonor and gives power to that weakness. Verse 44 indicates that Adam's body that he shares with humanity is, in the Greek Soulish. The NESB here says that it is natural, but in Greek it is soulish. It is defined by soul. This is because Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, which Paul quotes in this passage, states that Adam became a living soul. Adam was born from dust of ground. He was given the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. This soulish body will be raised unto a spiritual body. So the contrast here is soul versus spirit. Spiritual here in the phrase spiritual body, contrary to popular belief, does not mean immaterial or likened unto a vapor. That's not what spiritual means here by Paul. Spiritual refers to the power of God active in redemption and the making of God's new creation that will be imperishable. So spiritual and a spirit body is not immaterial. It's not a body of vapor. It is a material body, but it is not defined by soul. It's not defined by perishable humanity. It is defined by imperishable humanity. It is defined by God's new creation. It is defined by God's power from heaven. So we should not see here that a spiritual body is something that is immaterial. No, Christ's body was material. Christ was able to say with his resurrection body, touch me and see the nails that were driven through his hands. 
In other words, Adam's soulish body is perishable and weak, while Christ's spiritual body is imperishable and belonging to the age to come, belonging to God's new creation. In light of this truth, Paul can directly say that Adam and the humanity he represents is identified as living soul. Christ, as the last Adam, namely the last human being, represents the new humanity as life-giving spirit. Now, this phrase, life-giving spirit, in verse 45, is a difficult phrase for Paul that he unfortunately does not unpack further for us readers, leaving us to guess as to its meaning based upon the context. The context here of Paul describing Christ as a life-giving spirit clearly deals with the nature of the resurrection body of believers in contrast to the mortal body inherited from Adam. Since spirit refers to the power of God, bringing about God's new creation that redeems Adam's perishable humanity, spirit has to do with the quality or type of humanity being imperishable and belonging to the new age, rather than belonging to the old age. The life Adam gives is a life defined by a mortal soul. The life that Jesus gives is a life defined by spirit, a life defined by the new creation. So I don't think that Paul is saying that Jesus became the Holy Spirit, but rather Jesus, as a human being, as the last Adam, the last human being, was raised by the Spirit, receiving an immortal body defined by the age to come's Spirit, and Jesus is therefore characterized with Spirit in contrast to Adam's defining mortality. That's what I think life-giving spirit means. It doesn't mean that Jesus became the Holy Spirit. It means that Jesus became encapsulated in the Spirit's imperishable new humanity, new creation that defines Christ and the humanity he represents in contrast to Adam's humanity that is defined by a mortal soul. Moving on, Paul further defines Adam's body that he shares with humanity as defined by earth and dirt. It is earthy. It is soulish. It is of the dirt. It is of the earth. Since Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, according to Genesis 2.7. Those who share in Adam's body and humanity will suffer death and return to the dust of the ground. Jesus' humanity and body that he will share with believers is defined by heaven. Since Jesus will return from heaven to raise the dead to share in his new imperishable humanity. The terms earthy and heavenly are thereby identifications of two different humanities. One perishable, identified with Adam, and the other imperishable, as defined by Christ. Paul's final contrast between Adam and Christ notes that humanity is born in the image of Adam, but believers will bear, in the future resurrection, the image of Christ's humanity. This means that there is still yet a future consummation for Christ's victory and redemption for Adam's humanity, since death is the last enemy to be defeated. 
So while Paul can say that Jesus has been exalted and that his reign has begun, there is still yet a future consummation for Jesus' reign, and this future consummation of Jesus' reign and rule will be realized when he returns at his second coming to put all things into subjection under his feet. And the last thing to be put into subjection under his feet is the death introduced by Adam's humanity. So, in conclusion, we have observed that, number one, Paul has a well-thought-out understanding of the implications of Christ being the second Adam, especially in regard to salvation and eschatology. In other words, Christ as the second Adam is not merely an indicator of Paul's Christology. It also deals with his understanding of salvation implications and what is going to happen when Jesus returns. Number two, we observe that Adam represents humanity in a weak, dishonored, and perishable state, clearly in need of redemption. Christ, however, by sharing in Adam's death, triumphing out the other end in resurrection, represents a newer, upgraded version of humanity. Humanity 2.0, you might say. A humanity defined as glorious, defined as powerful, and defined as imperishable, incapable of dying. Adam introduced humanity to the enemy, death. And death is the last enemy that Christ will subdue when he returns to consummate the kingdom's rule and to raise the dead to share in Christ's new imperishable humanity. And lastly, number three, by contrasting Adam with Christ, Paul clearly identifies Jesus as a human being. Paul understands Jesus as the representative human being for the new creation of imperishable humanity. Paul remarks that Jesus is the last or final Adam, or the last or final human being, and notes how Jesus did not come before Adam in time, but came after Adam. If you enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast and you would like to donate to the work that it's doing, please check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for joining us today and listening at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time. You folks take care.